Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. My name's Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian Podcast. Today's person of note is Francis Bacon. And at the age of 20, he became a member of parliament. At the age of 42, he was knighted for his service to King James, becoming Sir Francis Bacon. At the age of 52, he was appointed England's Attorney General. At the age of 56, he reached the top by becoming the Lord High Chancellor of England. But Travis, who was Francis Bacon and what warranted his rise to the top echelons of government? Well, let's take a look at this background in his early life before delving into his theories and what makes him interesting for this History of Alchemy podcast. Let's just burrow right on into this. Francis Bacon was instrumental in developing the scientific method, but as we'll see in this t- in tonight's podcast, he was still very much in the world where alchemy existed and was possible. So he helped end the world of alchemy and ranted against astrology and magic, even if he thought transmutating gold was possible. Um, yeah, and Francis Francis Bacon, now, I, okay, this is pretty neat because he was homeschooled until about 12. And I guess the school system, well, I don't, I get, I mean, we've seen this many times before. The school system was very different back in the uh, early 17, 17th century or late 16th century, rather. Uh, because at the age of 12, after being homeschooled, he was granted admission to the Trinity College in Cambridge. And his medieval curriculum uh, was taught mainly in Latin. So that's kind of, you know, that's kind of different. Uh, that's like middle school age. And instead of that, you go to Trinity College. So Elizabeth I once called him the young Lord Keeper. His studies at Cambridge led him to believe that the methods and results of science studied at that time were completely wrong. So already like this young 12-year-old was like, no, 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 wait, 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 wait. This is, this is crap. Um, now, he claimed to like Aristotle, but uh, we'll see that, yeah, not all of it. And he claimed to be strongly against his beliefs and referred to them as unprofitable, argumentative, and incorrect. He and his brother, uh, Anthony, entered De Societe Magistrorum on July 27th, 1576. Um that's the first date I'll mention. Uh, so yeah, late late 16th century. From there, he went to France while his brother returned home. Now, while in France under Henry III, Bacon gained valuable political instruction. He studied languages and civil law while delivering diplomatic letters to England from Walsingham, Burghley, which happens to be uh, Bacon's uncle, and Leicester, as well as Queen Elizabeth I herself. You know, we did a podcast on her, Travis, and one of the other... Uh, and, and the others in her court and contemporaries. This is the time of Rudolf II, and after all, another piece of the puzzle mentioned in the Rudifying book that we are putting together right now. As a matter of fact, we're, we're, we're actually putting these pieces together in, uh, in one of our latest uh, endeavors, Travis. So uh, just a little plug for, for the yeah, book that's it, eventually it coming might, out. It might be that the book's already out, depending on when you're hearing this and when, you know, when this comes out. Um, 
so so check uh, check the website. There might be yeah, there might be a book about uh, Rudolfine Prague and this time period. But anyways, yeah. So in 1579, his father suddenly died. So you can imagine what that would have done for somebody that was homeschooled. And, and of course, you're talking about your place in society and basically your anchor, most likely, for Bacon. He was once quoted as saying that his, his three reasons for being were to uncover the truth, serve his country, and serve the church. He once applied for a position in the court through his uncle, Burgley, uh, but this was denied. He was later admitted as an outer uh, barrister in 1582. He took a seat for Parliament for Malcolm in, the, in Dorset in 1584 and then for Taunton in 1586. So this was the time in which Bacon began writing the now lost tract called Temporis Partos Maximus, believed to have been about uh, f- philosophical reform. Uh, so you could talk about this guy was really on the forefront of of really taking in what he thought he knew, but also really railing against what was taught in schools. So, uh, you know, really an, a very uh, interesting time for Bacon. So later in life, he, I mean, he, basically we're describing a political career here because because that's what he's mostly known for is his his rise to power um, in the you know upper echelons of of the British government. Um, um, I, I mean, he's but he served King James. He became Sir Francis Bacon, like we said, and at age forty five, he married Alice Barnum, who was still a few days shy of being fourteen. Wow, fourteen. <laughs> okay, <laughs> I guess those were the days when you had to marry early, right, Trav? <laughs> so uh, that would be a little uh, shocking today, but maybe back then that was somewhat uh, common. Yeah, there's so again, there's there's some some people that talk smack against him, and it's hard to say what the deal was, but um, some even said that he he preferred guys. Maybe like, and then, which is, you just never know. Cause at that time that was considered like a huge insult. But yeah, like they would cite his close relationship with King James as an example and his rise to power saying like, oh, something like he slept his way to the top kind of thing. So yeah, anyways, okay. I mean, that's, yeah, that's a weird theory. And then you add that he married, he did marry a, he actually married a third. I mean, she was 13 still at their, their wedding day and she, she became 14 but yeah anyway so eh. um but that's yeah that's that's kind of how it was even though so that's a 30-year gap i mean i don't it's hard to defend that even just saying well, oh, I mean, it was, it was like six, this, it was we, 1600 we, it was 1620 sure well people people had a life life expectancy might have been a little bit uh uh less than of course we have today so you might have to get moving a little earlier but you know there there were some some evidence though the bacon that had uh, really declared his love for this this young woman in the forms of poems that he had, and mm-hmm. and the courtship was was really flourishing uh, for him and uh, Alice. And uh, you know, as as things were coming up to their first anniversary, but you know, I, I I'll tell you though, after the honeymoon period, things started kind of unraveling a little bit. People started talking about things in the street and saying, hey, you know what? Um, we think that she might be actually having a secret relationship with a John Underhill. And yeah, uh, your yeah. bacon eventually took her out of his will because he really kind of yeah. you know bought into these 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 discussions behind his back. And there was also some folks that who suspected that he preferred the same sex as you saw, you said, Travis, and signing his very close close relationship with King James. Um, but and I wonder you know, about the, yeah, these things I, do happen. Mudslinging, yeah. you know. I mean, that's the you thing. You talk about like, being yeah. in politics. 
Yeah. Isaac so, Newton had the same thing uh, said about it. I think Isaac Newton, I kind of believe it more, maybe, I, I guess. But because um, he, 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 he read the letters some, uh, to his apprentice. Right. There's some but, scholars that say that. Yeah. Um, okay. And it, well, in any case, what's more interesting for us for the podcast um, to, to bring it back to, you know, why we're even here is that in, in 1620, well, I want to talk about his philosophy, basically. And in, and in 1620, um, he started to develop a method for philosophers. And the reason I emphasize the word method is because what he's most known for, especially after his death, is um, he's basically, he's, you could, you could call him the father of the scientific method. He wanted everybody to be on the same foot when um, furthering knowledge. And he started, I mean, he, he even started to, to call things like the scientific method. So, um, but yeah, he wanted a, a method for philosophers to use in weighing the value of knowledge. And so, I mean, he, he agreed with Aristotle. He, he disagreed with Aristotle in a lot of ways, but um, he agreed that, that humans can err in their five senses. And yeah, but yet this is how most of us learn. And, you know, this is like most of us trust our senses and that's how we know things. But yeah, so, uh, but Francis Bacon also said that he, he believed there must be doubt. We, are, we must doubt everything until we can kind of prove it. And this is... This is kind of science in the way um, that he himself might have not made any huge discoveries, but just like the philosophy of how you make discoveries in his works after his death. This is what actually makes him more famous. Um, the, well, yeah, you like know, the Travis, the, you can the, see the that, that method. Yeah, right. And you can see this, that the idea of deconstructing what you know is something that that he was dabbling with as a young man going through his education uh, and then saying, I'm going to place doubt on everything that I think I, I know. And yeah. therefore, I'm going to prove those things. We're going to start from ground zero and we're going to work our way up uh, from even the most basic constructs. And so, you know, using this, this scientific method uh, allows you to, to, to do this deconstruction and to repiece things back together. So just in case you miss something that you might even have a different take on what we consider to be, you know, uh, uh, fact and in and, uh, and the sense of science. So uh, really uh, very, very interesting. We're talking in the 17th century. Uh, must have been mind-blowing for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Now, when we, talk, when we talk about the scientific method, this is – we kind of put it we, – we put people in camps, uh, at least, on, I mean, on the show of like pro-Aristotle, anti-Aristotle, pro-Paracelsus, anti-Paracelsus. And he was kind of – I mean, he's in the anti-Aristotle camp for the most part. He's in the anti-Paracelsus camp uh, in the most part. But um, – but not entirely, and and he's often known as the father of empiricism in a way, but we don't want to, like, well, I mean, like, we've talked about other people on the show, like Ibn Hayyan, um, like Jabir, that were that were kind of in the same camp, like, they, they, they argued for experimentation and for, like, empirical knowledge in that way. Um, but he does, ha- but he does get this reputation. Uh, Francis Bacon definitely gets the rep- reputation of being uh, the father of the scientific ne- uh, method. There's an interesting side note. Uh, some people believe that Shakespeare's work was actually written by Bacon, but that Bacon chose to remain anonymous because of his uh, political aspirations. You know, so he didn't want to be seen as like a playwright. Um, yeah, because, you know, what do you what do you think about that? Have you heard that? Well, I think it'd be a little more confusing in the sense that you're saying that Bacon sort of wrote something but may have not wrote, wrote it. 
when possibly, as we learned to, as we may know today, that Shakespeare uh, may not have written some of the things we thought Shakespeare had written. So, <laughs> you know, yeah. you, you have Bacon saying that I didn't touch the stuff for Shakespeare, or I did, if Shakespeare existed in the sense of uh, the playwright that we know today. Uh, so, yeah, interesting in the sense that no one really wants to to uh, uh, cite themselves as uh, a fact of being a, a playwright. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, there's there's a lot of people, you know, uh, doing ghost writing and, and having gnome de plumes and and uh, those type of things. And, and maybe even Shakespeare borrowed some well, of his sonnets from other writers. Yeah. It's just really confusing. <laughs> yeah, Shakespeare just had the name. So it was like, okay, well, you know, here's this is here's a great uh, play, but um, uh, I'd rather be Lord High Chancellor. So you take this, you know, you you, you publish it and get the credit. So, Trev, before we kind of dive in more as a review of his uh, philosophical sort of standard, let's talk about how he wrapped up his his corporeal life, as we say, right? Uh, his his time on the top was very, very short. Uh, at the age of 60, he was believed to be in, insanely greedy and and uh, rather than spread wealth among the people, he was believed that he wished nothing more than to acquire tons for himself. Maybe a Scrooge McDuck, if you will, for those of us that <laughs> a more popular take on that, right? Um, he was uh, investigated for bribe, uh, bribe taking, and corruption. We talked about his political political aspirations, so that probably was par for the yeah. course. Eventually, pleading guilty uh, to this through stating that although he had taken bribes, he had applied the law correctly. So sort of agreeing that he, yeah, I did it. Yeah, <laughs> like, still, is, it, is it like no contest? My, my it's like I did it, but it was fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, everybody else is doing it, right? Um, so, so for these charges, he was fined a great deal of money and forced to spend a short period of time in, in prison. Uh, the fine was eventually waived, but he was denied the opportunity to serve in any more governmental positions and lost his government pension. So you can imagine the hard times falling upon Bacon later in life. Mm-hmm. As we approach his death, he was it was a result of exposure to the elements. Boy, is that ironic? I'm talking about <laughs> his viewpoint on on uh, you know one one of the you know let, let's go back to this for a second because that that is really interesting actually, Travis, because one of the things he was talking about uh, when proving tests for truths or hypotheses uh, that or hypotheses rather when you're talking about the scientific method, he had devised a method in which scientists set up experiments to manipulate <laughs> nature. And attempt to prove these truths to be false. So, for example, in order to prove that his sicknesses came from external causes, Bacon argues that scientists should expose healthy people to outside influences such as coldness, wetness, and or other sick people. So, flash forward back to what we just said about how he died of exposure to the elements. Okay, so uh, I guess full circle, right? Yeah. Bacon became uh, inspired to carry out these experiments on food preservations by freezing uh, a chicken, and he had developed a cough from this low temperature conditions, and his and his health really started to deteriorate very quickly. He dies of pneumonia at the age of sixty-five, doing pretty much what he loved, trying to uh, really <laughs> investigate the scientific method. I'm like, yeah. Freezing chicken. He likes to freeze. Ch- <laughs> doing what he loves. Freezing chickens. <laughs> ah, yeah, and so he, he died. <laughs> oh my god. 
Yeah, but, but he, that's right. He died from... I, I love it, actually. I was like, wow, you're really setting this up, like, that he's he died from freezing a chicken. Um, but no, I love the way you set it up that actually, yeah, he died, um, um, you know, running experiments. Like, that. That is that is kind of, like, poetic in a way. As a politician, even, and as his love for science, he kind of called for, for this society, if you will, um, that would, you know, that would um, kind of research things and... I'm I'm just trying not to say the Royal Society because basically he called for the Royal Society uh, before it was founded, and this was kind of you know because it was founded in 1660, um, and this was yeah originally you know the Royal Society is like super fa- we've brought it up dozens of times kind of a gentleman's club for t- you know tinkering aristocrats that would like to sit around and talk about natural philosophy or is that I don't know if that's accurate or not that's how I imagine it. Um, or his work called The Philosophical Transactions of the Royal Society is believed to be the first scientific journal. Um, but but yeah, it's part of the movement that really changed the world when the scientific revolution gave way to the industrial revolution. And um, but but this is so this is we're not there yet because Francis Bacon did still believe in alchemy. Yeah, he did kind of rediscover uh, pre-Socratic philosophers, especially one that I'll bring up because we did an episode on him and pseudo-him, which is Democritus and the old atomic theory. And this is also, this also kind of gives us um, a strange paradox or, I don't know, a contrast where, uh, and the reason we're talking about him on the show is that Francis Bacon did believe alchemy was possible while ranting against, like, criticism, uh, criticizing Renaissance alchemy, magic, astrology, all that stuff. Um, but yeah, saying that, okay, alchemy was possible, but just very, very dis- difficult. Like, it, it, like clearly it's possible because of the elements and you can manip- manipulate and transmutation is possible. Um, but it's just very difficult. He even went so far as to say that, you know, transmutating gold is more difficult than transmutating silver. So that's, that's neat that even that the father of philosophical, uh, the father of the scientific method um, still lived in a world where, even this rational being thought alchemy, like you could transmutate gold. So as we see in, in Bacon's life, we see him breaking away from the past. We, Travis, we talked about how he was looking at the alchemical past of his forefathers and saying, okay, what, what we need to do to kind of usher in a, a new line of thought through through the way of, of thinking with science as, as a foundation. And part of that is leaving behind the idols, you know, the idols of of, of you know, pagan scientific belief systems, yeah. uh, you know, things we used to think of in, in our caveman Stone Age days. We need to leave those idols behind and move forward to the things that we can think about today, you know, free us from those idols. And one of the uh, very interesting quotes that we have here from Bacon uh, warns the student of empirical uh, science not to tackle the complexities of his subject without purging the mind to of its idols. And quote unquote, this is what Bacon had to say. On waxen tablets, you cannot write anything new until you rub out the old. With the mind, it is not so. There, you cannot rub out the old until you have written in the new. Uh, mm-hmm. Deep thoughts by uh, yeah. by by Sir Bacon. <laughs> Sir yeah, Francis yeah. Bacon. Like, he's like, Let, uh, let's yeah. move on. Let's learn new stuff and get rid of our old way of thinking. And yeah. Um, yeah, like he has, I mean, just to give some examples here, like he has, so some of his idols are, and in his writings, you have like the idols of the tribe, the idols of the cave. And I mean, this is, I mean, he was really thinking like the old way of thinking, okay? And the idols of the tribe, 
where like this 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 our understanding of what it is to be human is kind of crooked like maybe i don't know to put it in modern uh, terms like maybe we see it through our own culture and our own you know fellow man and not like empirically from a bird's eye view so to speak or the idols of the cave travis which dive into the idea that he gave which consists of the conceptions of doctrines which are dear to the individual who cherishes them. So something that you can't really separate yourself with it because it's a part of you. And yeah. uh, it's part of your your human experience, right? And that's probably one of the harder things to distance yourself from because it's who you are. So without possessing any evidence of, of the truth, you know, you still hold on to the ideas of what you feel is right and what you think is is true. Something that, you know, is a base instinct that maybe our Stone Age forefathers had, which really goes into the idea of idols of the cave, I, right? I, I kind of see that as like, yeah, like my, like as part of your upbringing, like my parents said this and this and this, and so therefore I believe this and this and this, whether it's true or not. And it's kind of like, yeah, so you, you, you protect that belief um, somehow. It comes from uh, education. Yeah. It comes from yeah. customs. Exactly. It comes from yeah. accidental or contingent experiences. Mm-hmm. This is where you have some false conceptions that are based on other, like human communication, like human interaction, where where it's just like through language, like with other humans, that it's hard to understand the exactness of something because we're stuck in a in a rut of expressing ourselves a certain way. So like the the words, like we can only say certain words because we only have, or we can only say certain things because we only have certain words to describe them in a way. So we need to well, get rid of the idols you, of that, yeah. you know? Like we need to, how basically what he's saying, that? we need to find new ways to express ourselves or new, um, you know, meaning, new words kind of thing. Well, they always say, you know, the, the sense that you probably heard this before that, you know, words are very clumsy things. You know, they, when you travel uh, across the planet, you realize that there are some translations that just cannot be made from one language to the other mm-hmm. to give you the idea of how clumsy yeah, language exactly. can be. That's a great example. Humans, right? Yeah. Yep, there's plenty of Czech examples out there. So, yeah, but, it, but, but yeah, plenty of German ones where it's like, well, it doesn't quite mean the same thing, but basically, yeah, or like it's not word for word, but yeah. Um, another idol is the idol of of the theater, which I kind of understand it as, um, again, kind of go, like it's the idols of our beliefs. Like, just we're we're stuck in a rut from our our traditional philosophical systems, which I think he meant as like medieval philosophical systems. Um, maybe like medieval, like religious thinking, uh, that kind of thing that we have this idols of the theater, these things that we, uh, also publicly be- believe together kind of thing. Um, and yeah, well, I, I find this, I, I think you nailed it right on the head. I think this is actually, uh, his, his, uh, you know, uh, sort of viewpoint of giving it to the church because, because basically, you know, I think you know, the idea of following doctrine like sheep in his mind would be something that can keep you from from, uh, questioning new things Uh, because it always was this way. It should always, it is this way. It should always be this way is, is something he wants you to leave behind for destroying these idols. And the idols of the theater has to deal with group think. That's how I look at it, Travis, because you have group think here, just like you would be if you were sitting in a theater, you're all having this communal experience, just like you would in a theater or a church. And he wants you to break away from that group think. Uh, so leave those idols of the theater behind. Yeah, good. So so out with the old. We got we get we get that. 
uh, and with the new. Now, before we jump into all of his um, scientific theory and that kind of thing, and, and there, so there's some, some neat things I want to point out with his atomic theory or his scientific theory, because in my mind, Francis Bacon is another great example of this in-between gap of uh, old medieval thinking and new um like just like Isaac Newton, like we don't, uh, well, yeah, but but not like this brand new atomic theory where we have the, this, um, you know, oxygen and carbon and all of these are elements. Gold is an element, but he still had the old atomic theory. Uh, but yeah, so but Francis Bacon was still a bridge between the old and the new. And here, uh, if you want to read a bunch of his kind of alchemical thoughts, um, you can find it on levity.com. There's there's they have, there's a long text by Francis Bacon. I'll read you a piece from the unfinished uh, Instauratio Magna, and he writes, quote, The world hath been much abused by the opinion of making of gold. The work itself I judge to be possible, but the means hitherto propounded to effect it are, in the practice, full of error and imposture, and in the theory, full of unsound imaginations. For to say that nature hath an intention to make all metals gold, and that if she were delivered from impedience, uh, she would perform her own work. And that, that, that work is capital, meaning the work of transmutation. And that if the, crudi- if the crudities, impurities, and leprosities of metals were cured, they would become gold. And that a little quantity of the medicine in the work of projection will turn a sea of the baser metal into gold. By multiplying, all these are but dreams, and so are many other grounds of alchemy. So yeah, clearly, like, uh, alchemy is possible. It's just very hard to do. He he also, you can see here in this, in this quote that he believed that if you remove the impurities, then um, it becomes gold. So the, the purest metal ripens to gold, just like Sindivogius, and, you know, we've mentioned that a dozen other times. Um... And even, uh, what, who was the basilisk? The basilisk guy, he also had the same theories. So yeah, so we do believe that, I mean, so he's aware of, like, normal alchemical theories and even, you know, uh, mimics, like, echoes them in his own works. So I, it's just kind of neat that he he also writes about purifying the spirit. Uh, like I, that's why I said he could go more, read more on levity.com. Um According to Bacon, man would be able to explain all the processes in nature if he could acquire full insight into the hidden structure and the secret workings of matter. So you, yeah, and um, so he did believe in, you know, that it's possible to to transmutate and conquer conquer matter. I think my favorite line in that quote you said, Travis, was the leprosities of metal were cured, you know, in the sense of, you know, saying, you know, being uh, uh, leprosy. Le- yeah, yeah. 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 The leprosy of metals, basically. I was like, you um, didn't quite you know, understand what leprosy is, apparently. But yeah, yeah. Like, it's like, so to, <laughs> so to speak. Um, well, you know, yeah. I think you, know, you see people kind of grasping in the dark for what they think they know in their in their current their current viewpoints on things. And mm-hmm. as we say, words are a very clumsy thing. But to the people reading his quote at the time, they say, "Oh, I get it. I get it." You know, there's a, there's yeah, a may, there's yeah, a, a an impurity of this metal that needs to be cured. I didn't mention that like every single word in there is misspelled by modern terms. That was kind of. Uh... Um, yeah, challenging, but Challenge, challenging to read. Yes. <laughs> yeah, but it makes sense. It's still, it's still, um, understandable, but yeah, leprosities Google, it wants to autocorrect that to something else. But yeah, neat, neat quote. There is a lot more. I mean, he did write quite a bit about, 
uh, alchemy. So that's, I mean, that's why he's on the show, but. And I think this is a really interesting point as we're coming up to, to this point of, of our discussion on Bacon is that his notions of form is made possible by the integration into his matter theory, which ideally reduces the word of appearances to some minimal parts accessible and open to manipulation by the knower or the maker. So I'll give you a quote to kind of maybe wrap your head around that. The fundamental research of Graham Reese has shown that Bacon's special mode of cosmo- cosmology is deeply influenced by the magic of semi-Paracelsian doctrine. For Bacon, matter theory is the basic doctrine, not classical mechanics, as it is with Galileo. Consequently, Bacon's purified and modified versions of chemistry, alchemy, and physiology remain primarily primary disciplines for his explanation of the world. Yeah, and then yeah, and I, and I think it's like the the way that we have modern chemistry to explore, you know, to 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 find things out about the world. He believed the same thing with alchemy. So to him, it was just like, well, yeah, we can use alchemical means to discover for discovery for science. Um, so in his world, it, it totally jived. Alchemy had nothing to do with supernatural or magic or anything. It was just, um, yeah, it was just, uh, yeah, transportation is possible. So, you know, let's, 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 let's experiment with that. Let's see what else we can do with alchemical, uh, theory. So, well, you know, and you mentioned magic, Travis, you know, for Bacon, magic is classified as applied science while he generally subsumes, yeah. uh, subsumes that under science, quote unquote, Pure sciences and technology uh, can can flourish. So it is it is never really identified with uh, black magic, as we might might think, since it represents the ultimate legitimate power over nature. Whereas magia was connected to crafts in the in the 16th and 17th centuries, Bacon's science remains the knowledge of forms in order for tran- to transform them into operations. Really, again, wrap your head around this. We're talking the mid to late seventeenth century when witchcraft and was just kicking it. I mean, it was the, you know for yes. several hundred years, people were being burned at the stake for creating potions and and conjuring spells on people all the way up into the sixteen nineties yeah. at its fever pitch. I, I kind of at this point, I kind of want to say Bacon's heart is in the right place. Like he, so um, I think so. You know, he believes in the principles of the scientific method. He's he's developing these principles. Like he's one of the founders. Let's say. Um, however, he still assumes many weird things. So for him, he's like, well, if you know, if this magic spell works, um, or if you know, like um, um, sympathetic magic principles work, well, cool. Let's use that for science. Let's figure out. But the, yeah, I mean, so th- this is. He just he just assumes certain things. I would say not everything, not all experiments have been run yet. Not everything has been discovered yet in his lifetime, and so he just he gets certain things wrong, or we see things that with modern eyes is a little bit weird. Um, and and here's a great example I have of that. Which uh, there's some some tables here which are like his from his atomic theories, and this is really weird. Like you'll have. So pneumatic substances or sidereal fire planets substances like again tables of of ways of discovering the nature of matter let's say so how do you you know what is matter um, and he has like on like one of the columns is named sulfur quater, quatern, quaternion 
And I, I so actually, the, this one table is called the two quaternions, and we have sulfur quaternion, mercury quaternion, and then you look up between row one, two, three, four, you know, you know and you have uh, like pneumatic substances. Um, and so you'll have terrestrial fire under sulfur quaternion, you'll have air under mercury uh, quaternion. Um, and it's just like how to categorize things. Like what's the difference between air and fire? You know, what's the difference between water? So oil and oily inflammable substances, um, terrestrial ones in parentheses is, so the sulfur quaternion of that is water and crude non-inflammable, inflammable substances. So yeah, it's just tables of like weird, like, um, aspects and intermediaries and, and, um, that this is his theory of matter. So, but still, like, yeah, I mean, he was still in the generations that thought um, the stars were fixed. Um, yeah, so it just, just, but, but, yeah, I mean, he's quantifying, he's classifying things. That's that's the interesting uh, thing to note here. Yeah, and so, to, and to read you a quote regarding these tables. Um, okay, so this is uh, Bacon writes, It has not been ill-observed by the chemists in their triad of first principles that sulfur and mercury run through the whole universe. That's why sulfur and mercury are a column that cut through everything, okay? That you can classify everything in the world with sulfur and mercury, is what he's saying. Okay, and in these two, one of the most general consents in nature does seem to be observable, for there is a con- consent between sulfur, oil, and greasy exhalation. I, I mentioned oil, that was one of the columns that intersects with sulfur mercury. And, uh, okay, exhal- exhalation, flame, and perhaps the body of a star. See, stars was in his tables. So there is between mercury, water, and watery vapors, air, and perhaps the pure and inter inter-sidereal ether. So, yeah, like space, the ether. Yet these two quaternions or great tribes of things, each within its own limits, differ immensely in quantity of matter and density, but agree very well in configuration. So, and then you see his tables. So, yeah, for tables of of the two quaternions, yeah, those are the kind of things I described at some point, I'll put them up on the website so you can see. It doesn't make a lot of sense to... Um, there's not much you can glean from his tables, to be honest. But yeah, I mean, it does show that he believed everything is made out of... Which is... That, that, that's an alchemical theory, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, everything is comprised of sulfur and mercury. That's alchemical thought. So, um, yeah. So that's still... He, he was classifying things in, a, in an alchemical manner. And that takes us, Travis, to the idea of, again, scientific method and how he kind of put his thoughts together from pen to paper. And one of the uh, his main work that was done in 1620 was called The Great Instauration. And this great work remained a fragment, uh, uh, base bits and pieces, since Bacon was only able mm-hmm. to finish parts of the planned outline. The volume was introduced uh, by an intro and then had a dedication to the king, King James I, of course, as a preface. And uh, after that, Bacon printed the, the plan of the Instauratio uh, before he turned to the strategy of his research program, which was known as the Novum Organium Scientarium. So, um, you know, Bacon organized his 
insta ratio uh, in these pieces, and you divide it into six parts, Trav, and which yeah. reminded the contemporary readers of God's work in the six days of creation. So the plan of the work runs as follows, right? The first chapter would be the divisions of the sciences. The second is new, as known as the new uh, organon, uh, or the direct the directions uh, concerning the interpretation of nature itself. The third chapter falls along the lines of the uh, fomenia of the universe or the natural or experimental history for for the foundation of philosophy. The fourth chapter finds us at the ladder of intellect. The fifth chapter is the the forerunners or the anticipations of the new philosophy, basically the new kids on the block with their new thought (laughs) thought processes, right? Yeah. Right? You got to have – you have to have, again – Usher out the old and bring in the new. All right, that's chapter five. And then chapter six would be the new philosophy or the active science that he was actually peddling at that point in the 16th, 1600s, right? So part one, he aimed at the distinction between what was already invented and known in contrast to the things omitted which ought to be there. Mm-hmm. So yeah, now, so, I mean, basically this work, and again, it wasn't finished, but basically this work was like his his philosophy of science of um the intellect of you know it's it's a very big work and far-reaching kind of thing in summary um francis bacon who lived from 1561 to 1626 and the reason i mention that is that yeah the, the book we wrote is like that's just like that's rudolf the second's uh time time period rudolf the second died uh, a couple decades earlier but um, yeah, this, this, you know, this was before the 30 years war, this time when all our favorites are on the show and he was you know, Francis Bacon, the philosopher, the statesman and politician, the scientist, um, and of course author, and then, you know, eventually attorney general and Lord Chancellor and all that. In fact, for a while, the, um, uh, the scientific method, like his specific method was called the Baconian method, um, which which was, you know, had an influence for a while. And, you know, now it's I mean, because that's the thing, like the scientific method has been honed over time. He didn't invent it wholesale. Um, he wasn't the only father of science or father of empiricism. But but yeah, definitely one. And he yeah, he died at the age of 65. He died of pneumonia from freezing chickens, like you said. And one last thing I want to mention is uh, the man who epitomized the success of Bacon's inductive method, the scientific method, was born nine months after Francis Bacon's death, namely Robert Boyle. And that is a that's foreshadowing because we'll we'll do an episode on, on Robert Boyle soon. No, we already did, didn't we? Oh, I don't. Uh oh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> No, we did. Oh, we did Roger Bacon. Oh, boy, this is, yeah, we did Roger Bacon. Um, and by the way, are you getting hungry from saying bacon so many times, or is that is that I, just me? I'm not, I'm not because I'm, I'm so put off about the frozen chicken experiment. Oh, yeah. Okay. That, uh, uh, yeah, okay. that kind of threw me off there. But, uh, you know, I will tell you, as we wrap up his life and, and talking about his, his viewpoints on things, his curriculum vitae is actually pretty darn amazing. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, he he was able to ingratiate himself into the court of King James the first in the early 1600s. Uh, he was knighted. He was able to kind of uh, uh, 
to to rub elbows with the who's who of the day and then get kind of spit in their eye in a lot of ways saying you know nothing john snow mm-hmm. <laughs> because what well, you you're you're the old guard and i'm of the new guard and we're going to do things this way by deconstructing what we think we know and starting from the from ground zero and working our way up and and see if we can find something new uh in our new knowledge set by tearing down all our idols of of our, our forefathers of science and thought. And uh, some deep thoughts were put into this, but you know, his, his tail end of his life, like many of the folks we follow on the show, Travis, they wind up uh, having a great deal of financial struggles. Either they go to bankruptcy or they, or they have some sort of scandal um, where they're just, you know, brought down to, you know, very human sort of base levels of, of um, you know, trying to just eke out an existence uh, after these great experiments and these great sort of uh, thought uh, that they would have for alchemical processes. Uh, but it, it does come to the idea that we're all fallible in a very human way, uh, that it really lends credence to the fact that these guys were amazing when they were still healthy and financially sound, that they could make these great contributions to science and uh, a chemical thought before it all kind of came tumbling down around them. Um, you know, he did get a book out, which was pretty in- mm-hmm. informative with his six chapters. Uh, that's something that he'll be remembered by as well. Uh, but, you know, I think uh, he, you know, had a wonderful life in, in, in this sense and really uh, gave great contributions to science. And freezing chicken. I breathe. <laughs> I guess you the moon. We'd also like to mention that um, the History of Alchemy podcast is a, an Agora Podcast Network member. This month, the podcast of the month is Elias Belhadad's "The History of Islam," which I have listened to and I and I do highly recommend. And they've he and he and uh, Elias also plugged uh, us and Bohemican. So, Pete, you you like him too? Shut up. I. I do. I'll take. I'll take it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're we're also a member of the Dark Myths Collective, and I I bring I bring up both of them because well first of all we have to but also because we were on there is a Dark Myths podcast. It, Dark Myths has its own feed, and I I was I talked to Kristaps uh, from the Eastern Border and the Lesser Bonapartes um, for the Dark Myths there. So you can you know you you can go to iTunes and look up Dark Myths. Um, and also, likewise, Pete and I were on the Agora Exchange, and and so the Agora also has a uh, its own feed. And I think it's cool that that these networks are doing this because I learned a lot about our fellow colleagues, basically, because you get a uh, you know behind the scenes glimpse of who we are and um, what else we do besides talk about the Czech Republic and alchemy and. Um, yeah. Um, also, I'd like to mention that I, I just started a new podcast. What? Uh, called Africa, <laughs> A History. Um, and you can find that and a link to all of our shows, including Bohemican with Pete and I and A History of Germany and The Secret Cabinet. All of those are under podcastnick.com. That's podcastnik.com. And... What's the whoa? Okay, and then for for Bohemican, real quick, because I don't I don't want to give too many plugs, but we did something very awesome, and that is what 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 did we do? We reached over one hundred thousand downloads just recently, so we are in a uh, no 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 a, wait that that is true that that's a sign of how awesome we are for Bohemican. That's that's, that's um, the thing on my top all, of my head. All, all together, we're millionaires, <laughs> but no the um, <laughs> but I meant the latest Bohemican show we recorded. 
Oh, that's right. We we actually uh, did a – I went in at, uh, the opening night here in Czech Republic to the movie Anthropoid uh, that uh, did very well in the United States early this summer. It was actually released a little later in the year here in September, and uh, we did a review for that uh, movie about Operation Anthropoid and the assassination of Heydrich. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Worst Nazi ever. Yeah, Reinhard Heydrich, and and uh, the basically the assassination took very very small part of that uh, of of that story. It was more about the ramifications yeah. uh, of the five thousand plus people that had to pay the price in Czech- yeah. in Czechoslovakia for for that for that assassination. This is actually now our second episode on that topic, and uh, and it's because um, we've been to where villages used to be because there was two villages that were wiped out. Um, in, in retribution, you know, trying to find uh, the Lidica being, yeah, Lidica yeah. being probably the more well known of, mm-hmm. of the two. And, and uh, um, of course, it, it is, as it touches upon in this movie, uh, that uh, the people, no matter how much they helped the paratroopers, uh, the Czech paratroopers that came in for the assassination attempt or or not, um, anybody that came in, in contact with them that were linked to them somehow, they all died. They were all either yeah. sent to concentration camps. Uh, or uh, were shot on the spot. But still, and, uh, they yeah. killed the worst Nazi of all time. So kind yep. of. Anyways, uh, yeah, enough about, enough about that because we did, that's our second episode on that now in Bohemian because it is a really interesting topic, um, especially if you like like World War II history. So yeah, go, go take a look at those. And, and otherwise, uh, thank you very much for listening. Take care.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 